Welcome to Westminster Insider. The podcast gets started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea. To change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. No grand idea was ever born in a conference, wrote the author. F. Scott Fitzgerald. But a lot of foolish ideas have died there. And while anyone who sat through a pointless work-away day will recognise the truth in those words, I've been pondering this week if they might not even apply to the grandest conference of all, the annual gathering of the world's most powerful leaders that we've come to call the G7. The heads of some of the world's richest nations, the so-called Group of Seven, have been meeting once a year since the mid-1970s, gathering in a succession of remote but beautiful locations to kick around grand ideas. Many of them foolish. Many of them, hopefully, less so. This year, of course, this very weekend, in fact, it's the UK's turn to play host, with leaders from the US, France, Germany, Italy, Japan and Canada, plus the EU and a few other assorted guests, being welcomed to Carbis Bay, a small Cornish beach resort close to St Ives. As usual, most of those taking part will be white, middle-aged blokes. The new European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, is at least making her debut, joining Angela Merkel to become, by my count, only the fifth woman ever to take part in a G7 or G8 summit, which tells you something about the state of world politics over the past 50 years. There will be sunshine, There'll be a barbecue on the beach and there will be high-level diplomacy played out over ice cream cones, fish and chips and whatever other Cornish clichés the British hosts can rustle up. An awkward, socially distanced photo before a famous landmark is pretty much a given. For the leaders themselves, it's a chance to show that they can strut it on the world stage and to rub shoulders with a rare and select group of people who truly understand the pressures they each are under. And as Tony Blair, who attended 11 of these summits during his decade as British Prime Minister, tells the podcast this week, this stuff can really matter. Politics is like anything else. Personal relationships matter. And they matter enormously. I mean, if you establish a strong personal relationship, frankly, particularly between the British Prime Minister and the American President, that that enables a lot of stuff to get done. For their backroom officials, it will be the nerve-wracking culmination of months of careful preparation. I think you've got to let these leaders go, you know, and make it work. A bit like sort of taking your child for a play date. And for the rest of us, well, we just get to sit back and watch the show. For those of us who enjoy political theatre, this is one of those moments to see the real superstars in action. But what's it actually like to attend one of these annual jamborees? Does anything actually get done? Or are they just glamorous weekend jollies for members of the world's most powerful club? And can you really have an all-powerful summit these days without countries like China and Russia around the table? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're asking what on earth is the point of the G7 summit, and whether it's time this 1970s relic was dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century and beyond. It's June 2010, and a triumphant David Cameron, 
newly installed in Downing Street after nearly winning the general election, is boarding a plane. He's only been Prime Minister for a few short weeks, but already the chance to announce his presence on the global stage has arrived. The annual G8 summit, as it was then, with Russia still involved, was due to get underway in Canada, and for Cameron, a few glamorous days rubbing shoulders with Barack Obama, Angela Merkel, Silvio Berlusconi and all the rest lay in wait. The mood among his closest aides was exuberant. Incredibly exciting and still part of the overwhelming pinch me my office is number 10. This is Kate Fall, who'd spent five years working for David Cameron in opposition and then served as Deputy Chief of Staff throughout his premiership. You know, my first day in number 10, I walked through the front door and thought, this is where I work. That was the first wow moment. Um, But the second one, I think, definitely was on the way to that G8, as it was then, um, being taken to the airport, going straight into the sort of special VIP suite, straight onto the plane. And I found myself sitting next to um, David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, with, instead of a number for my ticket, just my name. I mean, most countries have their, their own national plane, as, as you know, and you, when you fly into an airport, you suddenly look around and see all the tails of the planes with the, <laughs> the countries, which is in itself an experience. Cameron was just 43 years old, not just the newest, but the youngest world leader in attendance. And being the outdoorsy, Sunday supplementy kind of prime minister that he was, his first thought on arriving in rural Ontario was, of course, to go wild swimming. Well, we arrived in Muskoka, which is a, a beautiful place in, in the middle of sort of forest in Canada, and the meeting hadn't started properly, and we were slightly sort of, you know, what to do. And David Cameron has always been very fond of, I suppose you'd call it wild swimming. So early in the morning, he decided to go for a swim in the, in the rather inviting lake, um, not thinking anything of it. And when the first meeting came, so we all sort of marched our sort of premiers into the room, a bit like sort of taking your child for a play date. We sort of arrived there and the talk of the, the town was David Cameron's swim. And I mean, he, he didn't do it to be sort of cool, but the, the impact was very amusing because it was sort of politically, it spoke to fresh young leader who takes cold swim and, the ones who'd been around the block a few times, you could see that they felt a bit sort of threatened by it. Um, and in particular, Bellasconi was rather put out and sort of rushed off to, to show everyone pictures of himself taking a swim, sort of him in his speedos. I, I remember Angela Merkel looking sort of a bit, <laughs> did we really deserve to see your photos? Now... An ageing Silvio Berlusconi handing round pictures of himself in tight-fitting swimming trunks to the leaders of the free world was probably not quite the vision that the G7's founding fathers had in mind when they first drew up plans for an annual gathering of the world's biggest economies. It was back in 1975 that the leaders of France and Germany first cooked up the idea for an annual summit between the heads of the six richest industrialised nations to discuss a joint approach to the economic problems faced by the West. The leaders of Britain, the US, Italy and Japan were all invited to join them that November at Rambouillet, a grand chateau on the outskirts of Paris. We want a private, informal meeting of those who really matter in the world, the German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt explained. And he got it. 
After three days of negotiations, the leaders finalised a plan to tackle spiralling inflation and unemployment. The following year, in Puerto Rico, this so-called Group of Six became the G7, with host nation the US inviting its closest neighbour, Canada, along for the ride. Then in 1977, it was Britain's turn to chair the summit, and this time the European Commission president, who at the time just happened to be Britain's former Chancellor, Roy Jenkins, was also invited to become a permanent attendee. This group of seven, plus the EU, and the occasional guest or two, has met every subsequent year, albeit only on Zoom in 2020 as the pandemic raged all around. For a while it was the G8, with Russia invited along following the end of the Cold War. But it was soon back down to seven again after Vladimir Putin was thrown out for annexing Crimea. But what's always marked the G7 out as different to other international summits is its relative lack of formality. It's the host country which sets the agenda, and there's no big bureaucracy attached, no vast entourage of officials joining the leaders in the room for each session. It's grown a fair bit in the years since 1975, but to this day, it remains an interpersonal power play like no other. Well, the summits at, at G7 or G8 level fit into two categories, really. Here's Tony Blair. There are those that come at a time of no particular crisis or anxiety, and those are more or less catch-up summits. I mean, they're useful for that purpose, but they're, they're summits where there's not a vast amount of preparation that's gone into them. Um, it's basically discussing the issues of the day and then moving on. But then there's the second category of summit in which the summit occurs at a moment of international crisis or heightened anxiety over a particular issue. And then, of course, the summit can be a summit that actually decides things, that maybe decides policy on behalf of the, the main Western countries, and certainly gives a direction to global policy. And of course, this summit, the G7 summit in Cornwall, is obviously in the second category because it comes at the, at the time of a global pandemic when everyone is focused on a very, very particular international problem. And you've been in in the room many times in these sorts of occasions what's the dynamic like for a leader walking into there Uh, do do you have to be assertive are you nervous if you're hosting the summit and you've got clear objectives then you know you've just got to remain absolutely focused on getting them agreed and there's always a risk of course that that no matter how good the preparations are from the officials you know that the leader themselves comes in with a different perspective but normally on something that is as important as this and coronavirus and how do we deal with it, you would expect the preparations to have been really deep and to have involved um, direct calls with the the leading people before you ever get to the summit. So with a summit like this, I mean, frankly, there shouldn't be anything that takes anyone by surprise. Are these the moments you miss? Do you look at this and think, God, I wish I was going in there to knock some heads together? (laughs) Well, whenever you've done the job at the, the top of politics, of course, one part of you is you know, always fascinated by by the process and what happens. But in the end, these summits are important in their own right. But in the end, they mean nothing unless a vast amount of preparatory work has gone into them beforehand. So you can't just look at the summit in, in isolation from everything else. The summit itself, if it's properly organised, is the culmination of a whole lot of political work. So there's no point in thinking, you know, would it be great to be at the summit? No. Indeed, the amount of diplomatic work undertaken to prepare the ground for these summits is immense. Much of the detail on agreements is often hammered out by officials long in advance, with a draft communique drawn up for the leaders to discuss and, hopefully, to sign. 
There are working groups, there are all kinds of initiatives, all of which report into the summits. This is Peter Ricketts, who has attended multiple G7 and G8 summits over the past 25 years as one of Britain's top diplomats, first in senior roles at the Foreign Office and later as National Security Advisor to David Cameron. So there's a huge bureaucratic sort of backstory to it. When you actually get to it, the key thing is that leaders meet on their own in a very informal way. So all the bureaucracy, all the words on the pages of the communique, that's all sort of dealt with. And it's a day and a half of them meeting together with very few people around them uh, to have probably the only time in the year where they get away from the cameras and all the security. They're all in a single protected sort of bubble and they can really have a proper informal discussion. That's really what it's all about. And are there not still lots of officials in the room whispering to them, giving them bits of paper, telling them don't say this and don't say that? No. The key thing about these G7 summits is that for the main sessions, the leaders are on their own uh, and they can uh, talk freely. Uh, There is usually an audio feed and there's another room with their so-called Sherpas, the senior officials listening. So there is some sort of record of what is said, but they, they are on their own. They can be informal. There are no cameras usually. The press are kept well away. Uh, And so they do have real discussions, unlike at most international meetings where there are 500 people in the room. And as a senior official yourself, as the Foreign Office, then as National Security Advisor, does that make you a little nervous to see your leader going in there with other leaders out of your grasp? I think you've got to let these leaders go, you know, and make it work. Um, By the time you get to be a Prime Minister of the UK, you're pretty savvy and you can pick up a brief and deal with it. For journalists, it's this personal interplay between the different leaders that can make these summits such compelling viewing. There are very few opportunities that these world leaders, the most powerful people on the planet, actually get to be in the same room with each other. This is David Hersenhorn, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent and a former Washington and Moscow correspondent for the New York Times. It's sort of hand-to-hand combat politics in a way, you know, so there's a lot you can do by phone, but that's just not the same as when they are in the room, can feel the chemistry, can step off to the side, you know, grab a bite to eat, you know, a drink, whatever it is. And so in that context, these things are really, uh, you know, rare moments where politicians, you know, are at their most human with each other. And so sometimes you do see incredible human drama. And it's not just the journalists who find the interaction exciting. I asked Kate Fall if David Cameron looked forward to these events. I mean, I think it is fun. I mean, you, you have the chance to represent your country at this meeting and, and meet all these other leaders and talk to them about what's worrying you and, and to be there and the different personalities. And, of course, you learn a lot. And those relationships really, really matter. Paul Harrison worked as press secretary to Theresa May between 2017 and 2019, accompanying her to multiple world summits. Contrary, perhaps, to appearances, she too loved operating on the international stage. That sort of diplomatic engagement, the kind of leader-to-leader stuff, is something that firstly only a prime minister gets to experience or a president, but, but also it has real value. And I think doing that role, you kind of see it, the fact that you can ring up another politician in another country and say, look, we occupy a fairly unique position on the world stage. This is how I see it. How do you see it? 
you're not surrounded by a team at that point is you on your own making a difference and so I think that aspect of the role that's quite hard to prepare for you know you don't it's not like being home secretary or being leader of the opposition or whatever it's quite unique and so I think most PMs find it quite exciting I think Theresa did the public view I would say of Theresa May was that she wasn't always a natural at that easy sort of sort of chatty diplomacy over a drink sort of thing is was that a fair view I think you know by nature of her personality she's she's quite a reserved person uh and doesn't have a huge ego but I do think you know she definitely built rapports with people and Boris and his relationship with Trump was quite you know demonstrative and backslapping and and they kind of each reveled in that and it clearly worked but the way that Theresa rubbed along with him was was different, but it was still kind of effective in its way. So, you know, I think, I mean, the lesson, if I suppose if there is one, is that, you know, every prime minister, every leader does these things in different ways. And a lot of the reason that politics is fascinating, right, is it, it's actually about personality. It's like about who that person is. And you can't hide that on the world stage. You know, so if you are like belligerent and quick to anger, naming no names, you know, that rises to the surface. And, you know, and sometimes I think, Teresa is reserved in the way that she engages people, but I think they also know that she's kind of calm and measured, and if she says something, she means it. And so there's virtue in different approaches. Even Theresa May struggled to remain calm, however, when Trump essentially tore up the official communique at the end of the 2018 summit in Canada. Naturally, he did this via Twitter. He just decided he, you know, he wasn't going to sign it. Uh, sort of fit of peak you know tears it all up <laughs> and it just became clear that we were on the plane all the hacks were on the plane and Trump had tweeted like this this is a disaster I'm not doing it and so just before we took off we I had to go back and say well okay well we basically still consider this to be valid and we think that the and the commitments that we signed up to we will honor and you know so there's that role of just trying to roll with the unpredictable punches. You, know, you, you never really know what's going to happen. And again, I suppose for onlookers, that's why it's exciting. And, and how does the Prime Minister react when someone has to go over and tap her on the shoulder and play and go, uh, Prime Minister, that thing you've been talking about all week, uh, have you seen this tweet from the President? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that is, that is exactly what I had to do. And uh, I mean, the length of the sigh would be measured in more than seconds i think is probably the uh, <laughs> like and you know there's a chance that the eye roll might have had seismic proportions coming up in part two we're going to get behind the scenes and tell you what it's like to actually attend one of these summits whether as a g7 leader a senior government official or as a lowly political journalist and we'll consider whether the g7 is becoming an outdated institution in a 21st century at least partly dominated by China, India and other emerging powerhouse economies. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. In the time it takes to listen to this advert, buy now pay later customers in the UK will have saved £100 in interest charges. Over a year, that adds up to £76 million, the same as it costs to build the London Eye. We're able to save customers money because we charge retailers a fee instead of the customer, and 14 million shoppers in the UK seem to like it. So why pay interest and why pay fees when there's a smarter way to pay? Klarna. Oh, there's another 100 quid. Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. 
As a journalist, there are many, many weird things about attending world summits. But perhaps the weirdest is that it's not actually that different to attending any other big conference with your work. You go somewhere exciting or glamorous sounding, but then spend your whole time holed up in a cavernous conference centre or hotel complex. You sit on buses, tap on laptops, navigate endless security checks, and cling to your plastic lanyard as if your life depended on it. You stay up later than you should have done drinking in the hotel bar, and get up earlier than you wanted to for some bleary-eyed group session the following day. You have a laugh with colleagues, you moan about not seeing much of the world outside. And yes, at the end of it all, just like at any other work conference, there are pointless goodie bags to take home. Shoved somewhere in the eaves of my and many other journalist attics are a G20 branded backpack from Hangzhou in China, a G7 paper fan from Shima in Japan, and from Malta, a Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit branded plastic pen. But that's not to say these trips aren't fun. I mean, look, you get to go on a private jet, you get to travel in a motorcade. Occasionally there's time for a cultural visit near to where you're staying. In Shima, in fact, they'd brought in some of the country's finest sushi chefs to lay on the food, and there were actual talking robots scooting around the summit hall, keen to say hello. And who could forget the G7 in Sicily in 2017, when all the flights back to Britain were randomly cancelled late on the Friday night? We in the unfortunate travelling press pack were forced to spend an extra 24 hours in the blazing Italian sun by the hotel pool, long after Theresa May and her team had headed home certain editors were less than impressed. But honestly, more fun than any of that can be the work itself. Not least, the chance to get upfront and personal with your country's elected leader and their extended entourage. They will have their news conferences where there is, there is a chance to do that. This is Politico Europe's David Hersenhorn. And sometimes our colleagues are in fact traveling with the leaders, right? So there is always a press presence, for example, on Air Force One with the U.S. president, in addition to a press charter that are bringing all the rest of our American colleagues. Uh, the Lisee uh, Palace will have a similar arrangement. So, you know, don't underestimate the ability for the, the, the national press corps to be with their leader and interacting with them. The British press pack, for their part, will almost always be traveling on the same aircraft as the prime minister. And on the flight over to the summit, the PM will leave their seat at the front of the plane and come back for an on-the-record chat, known in the trade as a huddle. There's a big table at the front, and what happens is PM, a couple of apparatchiks, one of which would usually have been me, uh, would stand on one side of the table. This is Theresa May's former press secretary, Paul Harrison. And then the other side, all of the hacks that had uh, gone on the plane to travel to the summit would assemble in a sort of, you know, in a huddle uh, or, a, or a pack or a mass, however you... Uh, however mob. You want to, mob, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> a rabble, uh, who would kind of assemble and you just get one question, whatever it is, on the record, and you get to ask, you know, you get to ask the Prime Minister that. It's a bit of a high wire act from our perspective because, you know, you don't know what what is going to be asked sometimes somebody asked some someone asked something about love island once and you know <laughs> uh you know there was a question about should there be a female james bond and those things sometimes could be quite revealing right because you know if you'd asked 
Theresa about you know precisely what it is about particular sorts of alignment on SPS rules about like of course she would have known the answer and would have just trotted it off you know she thought it was important that that people get the access and to answer those questions but I I sometimes you would sometimes get this faint sense of bemusement as you know somebody asked some question about Love Island that you know clearly had no idea about. On arrival, the leaders and their entourages are whisked off in one direction, and the press in another, with many hours of fun ahead trying to navigate the enormous ring of steel and labyrinthine security measures which are inevitably set up around these kinds of summits. But there is this ritualistic process. You know, David Hersenhorn. You know, get the badge, know where the hotel is, know where the buses are, know how to get through the security points, you know, figure out where the, where the food is. It's never terrific, but at least we don't starve uh, during these uh, three days or so. The most memorable ring of steel I ever saw was around the G20 in Hangzhou, where the Chinese government, being the Chinese government, essentially emptied out nearly an entire city of six million people to ensure the smooth running of the event. I remember staring open-mouthed through the windows of our press bus as it raced through miles of empty streets on the way to the summit. Then, of course, you have um, you know, a media centre where the reporters are able to set up workstations, but also you know, delegations will come in and out. Folks will come in and want to brief us, who are, again, these Sherpas who are the, the top advisor for the, the G7 summit to, say, the president of the European Council and the president of the European Commission. Boris Johnson will have an entire team. Obviously, the Foreign Office has an entire team, and they want to interact. You know, they're, they're sort of telling us some of what's going on, messaging what they want to accomplish. David was one of a small army of Politico reporters who covered the last G7 summit in Biarritz in August 2019. You know, we were hearing different things from uh, some of the American delegation than we were hearing from the French organizers. You know, in the meantime, you know, we were talking to people like John Bolton, you know, the national security advisor who might be wandering around. Uh, so there, you know, there are these unscripted moments, uh, you know, the, um, the various, you know, uh, cafes, bars, restaurants around. You end up uh, bumping into people, you know, and then, um, you know, I will confess, you know, I spend my time you know, working very, very hard. But when you have a G7, say, in uh, Sicily, as there was not too long ago, some of our colleagues take pool duty uh, to a whole different level. <laughs> and <laughs> their editors call wondering where they are. He's like, pool duty, yeah. <laughs> With a um, I have uh, no idea who David could be talking about there. Also, to be absolutely clear to editors, it's not all gravy. I don't want to sound too enthusiastic about this. You know, we also hate these bastards sometimes. <laughs> they lie to us, they cheat, they steal, they disappoint us, they make us miserable. You know, they don't answer our questions. They leave us sitting on a bus for hours. We go through 909 security checks for no purpose whatsoever. You know, how many dogs have to sniff our bags before we're allowed to go in and do our jobs? You know, the logistics of recent years had made it super difficult even before COVID. And so by the time this is all done, uh, you know, I probably won't be able to count the number of PCR tests we'll have had. While journalists are hovering around outside the summit building, pestering officials for nuggets of information and trying to piece together what's going on inside the room, the leaders are locked inside, discussing the draft agreements their officials have drawn up in advance. Tony Blair told me the usefulness of these discussions depends entirely on the global circumstances at the time. 
there can be summits that, that are what I call kind of communique summits. In other words, the communique is full of great sentiments, but nothing much happens afterwards. But then you do get summits. I think back to the Glen Eagle Summit 2005, G20 Summit following the financial crisis, in which real decisions were taken in 2005 around Africa and climate change and aid and development. In those cases, you know, the summits do decide direction. And then it really is a matter for the countries themselves to follow up on implementation afterwards. The 2005 summit was particularly memorable for Blair, not just because as host he was able to set the agenda on foreign aid, but also because he was forced to briefly leave the summit on its second day following the 7-7 terror attacks in London. 2005 was a unique summit in many ways because we, we had an extraordinary weekend in which we did agree a very substantial amount at the summit. But then at the same time, we had the Olympic bid that Britain won, obviously, for the 2012 Olympics, and then the, the terrorist attacks. By then, I'd been prime minister for eight years, and we just had our third election victory. And so I really focused the summit around the question of aid to Africa and climate change, where I wanted to get the US to shift its policy. And that was a successful summit, in part because we did have really substantial issues that we managed to agree to get on the agenda, but partly also because, obviously, you know, you know, for reasons that some like and some don't, the relationship with President Bush was extremely strong. And out of that, really, in a sense, came the PEPFAR program from the US and obviously the trebling of aid, which was you know, probably the biggest life-saving program for the continent of Africa. Blair contrasts that summit with his first a Bill Clinton-hosted extravaganza in Colorado in the summer of 97. Nearly 25 years later, the most memorable part of that event for Tony Blair appears to have been the rock concert organised for the leaders, titled Saturday Night at the Summit. Of course, I was a very, very new boy. I remember we took Concord over for the summit. And that that was a summit where, frankly, there was more show than substance. But that also causes its own its own anxieties because, you know, you, you then have events, kind of vague recollection of, is this even possible that Chuck Berry ended up playing? At the- <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was, a, there was a lot of show around that. And of course, that can be, you know, the, those things always have the capacity to go horribly wrong. But, you know, once you settle in and you've done a few of them, you realise that in the end, it's about making sure that you have the right bilaterals. Sometimes in these summits where there's nothing particular to discuss, at the centre of it, then a lot of it will be done in the bilateral meetings that happen in and around the summit. Peter Ricketts, the former diplomat, says that in fact, these one-to-one meetings in the margins of the summits can often be the most significant part of all. In a way, the most important thing that happens there are the informal chats in the corridors over coffee, where problems can get sorted out, you know, um, differences can be aired and perhaps resolved. Um, That's much more important than the formal discussion of the agenda, which pretty much is a prescripted thing. But also they'll have a long list of brush-by points, things to say to other leaders when they get a moment, nothing to do with the agenda often. The personalities do count. And these are occasions where they can get to know each other, they can build trust and confidence, they can understand the other person's point of view, what's really important to them. And it is about the only time in the year where they can walk down the corridor and bump into the German Chancellor or the French President without journalists buzzing round. The circumstances where leaders grab these informal one-to-ones can often be rather strange. At a 
cultural event put on by the host nation, for example, or over late-night drinks, or early morning gym sessions, or just when they find themselves sat side by side en route to the venue. Kate Fall recalls one such moment at the end of the G7 in Canada, when bad weather meant helicopters could not easily get the leaders to their next appointment, a G20 summit over in Toronto. This fog came down in in Muskoka and no helicopters could take off. The whole thing was supposed to be helicoptered. Um, A bit like, you know, so we were all leaving at the same time. The only helicopter which was high-tech enough to leave in the fog was, of course, Marine One. (laughs) Um, The rest of us were all going to be put in the back of the car. And there was a moment when the then chief of staff to Obama, a guy called Ram Emanuel, and everybody knew this guy, sort of came up to me and Tom Fletcher, who is the, the Foreign Affairs Private Secretary, and said, we have room for your PM plus one on Marine One. And he said, don't start arguing till I turn my back about who's going to be on it. Um, so I, I looked at my head of comms, Andy Coulson, and Tom Fletcher, who was the Foreign Affairs guy, and I thought, I haven't a cat's chance in hell of being on this plane. I, I don't have an argument to stand on. So they, they flew off in Marine One and made the bilateral. And I got stuck in a car park for half the day, um, trying to get to Toronto. Cameron used his time on board to bond with Obama, swapping stories about families and working life, and to discuss the all-important issue of the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. That proved to be really helpful for David Cameron. Peter Ricketts. It was his first real meeting with Barack Obama. Um, It was the place where he began to float the idea that the British forces would leave Afghanistan within a few years. And again, it proved to be the right setting for the particular issue of the moment. What struck me as a journalist attending some of these summits is that a lot of work would go into these communiques that the leaders would agree on. But Afterwards, there was no mechanism then for that to become a reality. And you sometimes wondered if all of that work would then just sort of drift off into the ether. That's a really important point, And it's one I also discuss in, in my recent book, Hard Choices. Uh, and the, the real problem with the G7 is the communiques pile up in the cupboard. But unless it's handed off to an institution uh, with a machinery for delivery, then nothing actually happens. In an ideal world, would you like to see more of a structure built around the G7 or something similar to to act as more of a delivery body? Actually, I think the G7 performs best as an informal place where the leaders can meet. There are plenty of other organisations and institutions in the world. I don't think we need another one, because as soon as you start to have a secretariat and a staff, the whole thing bogs down in bureaucracy. A good chair of the G7 will have an idea of what happens afterwards. Um, that an issue which gains attraction, gets real traction at a G7 summit, can then be handed to an organisation to deliver it, whether it's the OECD or the IMF, if it's an economic issue, um, or foreign ministers, NATO, or an organisation like that. But unless there is some way of following it up, the risk is it makes a splash, then everything moves on and nothing much changes. And yet some people will look at it from the outside and say, You know, you're supposed to be the world's most powerful people carving up the agenda. And yet the country that is clearly one of the main superpowers of the 21st century is not there. So how much can the G7 do without China being involved? Of course, since the G7 was invented in the 1970s, things have changed in the sense that it used to be pretty much the largest economies in the world. 
now with the emergence of China and other large economies, it's not. Um, if it has some sort of connecting fiber, it's like-minded liberal democracies, open trading countries. But in the end, uh, to take account of China in particular, the G20 was created at the time of the financial crash in 2008. That's obviously a broader grouping. It is more representative of the major economies in the world. And that's probably the place where the serious economic and financial arguments have to be had. And I think it's better to keep the G7 as a, as a group of like-minded. I think that's its most powerful role. I asked Tony Blair if he believes the G7 is really still relevant, given the shifting power balances of the current era. The G7 can still stay relevant. Indeed, in a funny way, it's become more relevant recently. There was a time when it, the tensions were much less between the West and China. And then the G20, for very obvious reasons, was seen to be almost supplanting the G7. But what's happened you know, in the last few years, as relations with China have become much more strained and you know, one thing that has really not altered from the Trump administration to the Biden administration is a, an increasingly tough position from the United States with China. And therefore, the G7, which is essentially the group of democracies and the invitations to other democracies to, to, to join some of the discussions, is an indication that in a way the G7 today is recovering relevance, um, even though if you want a lot of these big global issues to be dealt with, whether it's climate change or, or COVID, then you're going to have to involve, of course, China and the other members of the G20. But the G7, no, I would say that's that's why this is a big opportunity for Britain, because I think this G7 is taking place in circumstances where three elements are present. One, you have a huge issue to discuss, COVID. Second, there is a sense that the democracies of the world have really got to recover their alliance and the strength of their position. And thirdly, that you've had a switch in American administration to one that is making a multilateral approach and alliances a fundamental part of their attitude and policy. And so for all of those three reasons, you've got a summit happening in quite an interesting context, which offers Britain, as I say, it offers us a, a significant opportunity to carve out a leadership position that is both distinctive and effective. Britain is, it remains a large economy. It's got huge relationships around the world. Um, it's got the strength of its language, its culture. It's, of course, able to form strong alliances, um, both with America and even outside of, of Europe. Obviously, I was never a fan of Brexit, but even outside of Europe, it, it's still got a role to play. So that's the challenge for Boris Johnson as he prepares to host a selection of the world's most powerful people this weekend. Finalise the big agreements as officials have been quietly negotiating for months, yes? Use one-to-one -one meetings with fellow leaders to build personal relationships, absolutely. And above all, form a strong alliance with the most powerful guy in the room, the US President, and use it to your advantage. But the bigger picture is what matters most. Can he show that Britain and by extension, Boris Johnson, still has a serious role to play on the world stage. If he can pull that one off, amidst the rows over Brexit and all the rest of it, then he can probably chalk up his weekend at the Cornish seaside as something of a success. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts 
And why not have a look back at some of our past episodes too, which range from the art of political drinking to advice to a Prime Minister on how to charm a US President. My producer this week was Emma Barnaby of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week for our season finale. I'll see you then. <laughs>